And that kind of gets us to where we are today in Genesis 45, uh, that whole chapter plus the first seven verses of the next ones. We have a lot to cover. Listen quickly because time is short. I've titled this No More Deception. That'll become clear. That's one of the main points. Last week, we saw the final test that Joseph put his brothers through with Judah continuing as the spokesman. He pled for Benjamin's release because Joseph was going to keep Benjamin there when they went back to get Jacob. And Judah said, no, you got to let him go. Take me. Make me prisoner. He was going to be the substitute so that their father would not be overwhelmed with grief. In our passage this morning, we see an end to the deception and distrust that had marked this family for so long. This change in his brothers prompts Joseph to drop his mask. All is now in the open. Nothing is hidden. So it is in this day, today, day by day, as we walk before God, as He tells us in Hebrews 4, there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. This ought to affect how we live in public and in private. We need to keep in mind the nature of the one to whom we must give an account and the nature of ourselves as unworthy yet redeemed people that have a cause to walk as children of the light and praise the Lord in all that we do. So into our text, the first four verses, we see Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. So verse 1 of 45, Genesis 45 says, Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. I'm going to stop there for right now. Last week, we heard how his brothers were concerned for their father's welfare. Judah was willing to be thrown into prison for the rest of his life. If Benjamin would be allowed to go back to Canaan to be with the father Jacob. Because Jacob said he would die with heartbreak if he was to lose Benjamin on top of having already lost Joseph. So Joseph hears this and he comes to the end of his stoic ruse. He's no longer that man from Egypt. He sends those people away. They know that these are his brothers because he's told Pharaoh about it and gotten permission to do all of this. But he doesn't want them to see this reunion. This is personal. He sends them away, yet he wept so loudly 
that they heard him all the way into Pharaoh's house. They heard of his weeping with joy at being reunited with his brothers. John Gill said, quote, not that Joseph was ashamed of them and of owning before them the relation he stood in to them, but that they might not see the confusion his brethren would be thrown into. He didn't want the Egyptians to be confused by what was going on. Have knowledge of them. They would have been guilty of selling him. He couldn't fail to be mentioned by him. And they confessed to one another. And it wasn't suitable to his grandeur and dignity to be seen in such an extreme passion. See, officials aren't supposed to be human. Senior officials of state, they're supposed to just be impersonal. Joseph could not have his position compromised by his compassion for his brothers. Joseph asks if his father yet lives. He'd already been told that he was alive and well, right? He knew this. This question was to express his love for his father and the joy that he would have by seeing him again. See, even after Joseph identifies himself as their brother, I am Joseph, the one you sold into slavery, they're terrified of him. Joseph likely sat in a chair kind of like what Herod would sit in when he judged people back in Jesus' day, high and lifted up in a position of authority, emphasizing his importance in Egypt. And his brothers, they've been told all these times, many months that they've been coming two times to Egypt, that he was this fearful second-in-command of Pharaoh, Egyptian. And now he says he's Joseph. They thought he was dead. They lied to their dad all these years, telling him that he was dead. He bids them come close. Gill observed that the sin of selling him came fresh into their minds. The guilt of it pressed their consciousness and the circumstances that Joseph was in filled them with fear that he would avenge himself on them. This is what they were thinking multiple times, as we will see. What Joseph says sheds light on their state of mind. Fear of retribution for the evil they did to him, as Gill perceived it. The last thing that Joseph mentioned in this section was that he was the one he had sold into Egypt. Not to press guilt on his brothers, as they might infer, but to simply show them, yeah, I'm that guy. You know, if he was an Egyptian, he may not know the details of having been sold into slavery the way Joseph was. So he's trying to establish his credentials with these brothers that he has been masked to for so long. Who else would know that they had done that secret evil thing? Let's look at the next few verses where Joseph comforts his brothers five through eight. But now, Joseph is speaking, now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. 
So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. This this may be the key passage in this whole saga. All the jealousy, all the distrust, all the deception that has marked Jacob's family for more than two decades was all being worked out together for the good of those whom God had promised to prosper. Paul hadn't written Romans 8.28 yet. But God is showing that this is a truth. He's called these people. He's made a promise to these people. And as we sang in that song, all the trials that come our way, God, He carries His children along. Even the severe famine that had plagued so many nations was part and parcel of the plan to get Abraham's descendants into Egypt. Back in Genesis 15, we need to remember this. Back in Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16, God's talking to Abraham, reestablishing, reconfirming, redefining his covenant. And he says to Abraham, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquities of the Amorites is not complete. Is that what I wanted to see? I wrote down the wrong passage. I wanted to get to uh, 18. I don't remember. It was further up than that. 13. I wrote down 13 and I didn't start reading at 13. See, not even perfect in reading my own notes. So God said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will flick them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And then what I read earlier. So, here's the point. When he's talking to Abram back in Genesis 15, he doesn't mention Egypt. But it's clear by what we see here that Egypt's what he had in mind. Because how long were they in Egypt? A little over 400 years. Did they come out of Egypt with what? Great possessions. Was Abraham sent back to Canaan to be buried? Or Jacob was, rather. Yes, and so was Abram sent back there. All of this, you know, go read in Exodus chapter 6. Moses makes it clear. All of this is according to what Yahweh told Abram. I've said it before, and we've heard it many times different ways. Happenstance isn't how things go. There is one who orders history to unfold according to his plan and decree. Note the details in what Joseph told his brothers. God sent me here, not you. They sent him there. They put him in the savory and slid me. God did that. That's what, that's what Joseph is recognizing. Just as when Peter said that Jesus was crucified by lawless men whom God had established to do that thing. Joseph said, He sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. They said, they, they told their dad they'd killed him. 
And this dead man is now in Egypt to preserve their lives. Five more years of famine. Who could know this but God? Who could know but God that there would be this famine? There would be these times of plenty to get prepared for the famine. Nobody but God can know this. God made Joseph a father to Pharaoh, one who teaches, counsels, and advises the man. He made Joseph a lord over the entire household and ruler over the whole land of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the planet at that time. Joseph, a slave, thought to be dead. This viceroy, vice chairman, vice pharaoh of Egypt. If God had not put Joseph in this position, if God had not put Joseph in this high, exalted position, Joseph would not be able to do any of these good things for his brothers that God sent him there to do. God gave Pharaoh a dream that he could not comprehend. And God put Joseph in the remembrance of the cupbearer. Oh, there's a guy who can interpret dreams. He's in prison. Call him out of prison. Go tell Pharaoh the dream. And because of that, Pharaoh sees the wisdom of this man, knows that this God that gave him the interpretation is powerful. I want him next to me. He was highly favored by Pharaoh. God equips those that he calls. The great deliverance that Joseph would bring to, to his brothers was to preserve a remnant. And this foreshadows the deliverance that God would bring through Moses. And it foreshadows the deliverance that Christ would bring at the cross. In each of these deliverances, these redemptions, there is a dual focus. God is great and he is good because he is great and truly sovereign over all things. And he works out all things to the good of those that he loves, that love him, that are called according to his purpose. He can do this good thing. This is our assurance that no matter what our circumstances, we can trust God. The goodness of God comes to us through his Greatness, just as it did through Joseph. And this shows that God works through means. He works through circumstances and people to accomplish his will for us. So let's move on to verses 9 through 15 in our text where Joseph sends for his father. Starting at verse 9, he says to his brothers, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. And you shall hurry and bring my father down here. 
Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Having his brothers come to him the second time, Joseph now tells them to go quickly to get Jacob and bring him to Egypt. Now, Joseph does not stand here on his position of, of authority as he did when he told his brothers to bring Benjamin to Egypt. You shall not see my face if you don't bring this son to me, he said at that time. But now he's telling his brothers, he refers to himself rather by his relation to Jacob, son the father. Go tell Jacob his son Joseph lives. And that God has done all of this for the preservation of life. He rehearses, he tells them to rehearse back to Jacob what he had already told them. He earnestly desires to see his father. And notice that he doesn't take this glory for himself. He deflects the glory of his high position to the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made me Lord of Egypt. See, He didn't do it. He was put in positions of lowliness and God raised him up and set him in that high place. His entire clan, Jacob's entire clan would come to be settled in Goshen, which was the best land in Egypt. Why would Egyptian Pharaoh give the best land to Hebrew people who herded sheep? God favored Joseph. This was close to Joseph's house. This is their salvation so that they will not perish in Canaan during the famine. It's a temporal salvation which is necessary for God's redemptive plan as he protected the promised seed through generation after generation. Joseph tells his brothers not to rely only on his words, but to use their eyes and to see him, their brother, Not as a mere Egyptian, but as their brother. See, he's speaking to them in Hebrew. All of the Egyptian servants have gone. They used to translate from Egyptian to Hebrew when he spoke to them as the man from Egypt. But now he's been talking to them in their own language. How does he do that? They're having trouble understanding who he is. But he's pressing upon them that I am the brother that you did these things to. He speaks to them and he, he tells his brothers that he wants them to believe that he is the one that Jacob thought was dead. See, when, when Jacob sees Benjamin, he's going to be overjoyed because he had given him up for dead. He, remember, he loved Rachel and he didn't love Leah so much. And what two sons were born to Rachel? Joseph and Benjamin. And he'd lost one and it broke his heart and he didn't want to lose Benjamin. When he hears that Joseph is still alive, both sons of Rachel, Joseph understands where his father is and he wants him to be full of joy in his old age. Joseph wants his father told about his position in Egypt so he wouldn't be reluctant to come. He needs to have assurance that when they move everything, don't leave anything back, it's a permanent move, that there would be the resources to provide for them while they're there. So it's important for the brothers to rehearse who Joseph is within Egypt. 
But he's standing there not as the high-ranking Egyptian who simply sells them grain. He stands there as the lost son of Jacob who wants to do good for them in providing salvation for his entire clan. And Joseph hugs his little brother and he weeps with joy and he braces all of his brothers and they weep with joy and they talk for a bit. Fellowship with one another. It's finally a family again. Now we'll look at the next few verses where Pharaoh gets involved. Starting in verse 16, it says, Now the report of what it was, the report of it, was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Joseph said to, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan, bring your father and your households, and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. Now this shows us the high esteem Pharaoh had for Joseph. Consider the wealth that Joseph had built up for Pharaoh these seven years of good times. Joseph bought grain at market prices that as time went by proved to be very good prices. And then he sold grain for market prices which were higher when it's scarce. And he reaped a lot of wealth into Pharaoh's treasury. Joseph had made Pharaoh very rich and very well respected. See, of all the lands around, only Egypt had enough to eat. How mighty Pharaoh must be, these Egyptians thought, that he can provide for us. Yes, at a cost, but yet... We don't die from starvation. He was respected. No other nation had Joseph put by God to preserve life. Joseph, rather Pharaoh and all of his servants, they are pleased with the news that Joseph's clan has come. He wants them all to come at his expense. Take my carts and don't worry about bringing over your household stuff, he says, because we're going to bring you here and take care of you. If Joseph has done all this good for me, then his clan must be also good for me, Pharaoh's probably thinking. Where am I? Pharaoh did not want Jacob and his family going back and forth to Canaan to fetch stuff. He wants them to come and settle and be there. Having Joseph's family near him was good for Joseph. Anybody could see that. And what's good for Joseph would continue to be good for Pharaoh. See, Paul would say later, encouraging us to work well, he says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do for the glory of God. Joseph had that mindset. 
And this is why he was favored by God. And he prospered Potiphar and he prospered Pharaoh and all of Egypt. And we know that God's behind it because later Solomon would write in Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord's. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. See, there's no way to overemphasize how good God was to Egypt through Joseph for the sake of Jacob's clan. He continues to work in the world today for the good of his people. Just because the history of of, uh, national Israel is finished doesn't mean that God's finished working in the world. His kingdom is present amongst us, amongst every group of believers. And he works in us for the good of the world. The next few verses, Joseph makes provision as he sends his brothers out. Verse 21 says, Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. So Joseph gives his brothers provision that Pharaoh told him to give to them. He gave them provision to get to Canaan and return to Egypt. He gave each of them more than adequate provision for the journey. I guess back in that day, you didn't get to shower every night at the Motel 6. And so having change of clothes was a good way to not stink so bad as the journey went on. So he gave all of them that. But then as at the dinner, what he gave Benjamin, what was it, five times or ten times the amount of food? He gives Benjamin five times the change of the clothes and he gives him a lot of silver. As if he's testing his brothers. Are you sure you're done with the jealousy? Are you sure you're done with the envy? Let this, let this go before your eyes and test you. And he sent a whole bunch of stuff for his father too. He wants his father and all of his people to be comfortable. And as they were leaving, it says in the New King James, see to it, you do not become troubled along the way. Another translation says, don't be arguing amongst yourself as you go, as if anticipating that they would argue. You travel with small children at all? What do they do? They argue the whole time. It's their favorite pastime when they're in a confined space. His brothers had argued about among themselves about what to do with their brother, the dreamer. They were used to arguing amongst themselves, arguing with their father. They had argued about many things, and Joseph impressed upon them the need for unity. 
When you go back to dad, be of one mind and one heart and tell him these good things and bring him here so that all can be well, all can be saved. The last bit of this chapter, Jacob's response, starting in verse 25. Then they went up from Egypt, went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive and he's governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Before the brothers sent, before they went on their second trip to Egypt, Jacob was worn down. He had given up and he said, take Benjamin. He, he thought he would lose Benjamin, his second son of Rachel, the wife that he loved. The anticipation was building in his soul the whole time that these two sons were gone. Whenever they came back, it would not be with Benjamin because he would lose him just as sure as shooting. He just knew this in his soul. And we don't have a timetable for these visits. We don't know how long it took to get from Canaan to Egypt, how long they stayed in Egypt, when it get back. We don't know, it was months probably for each trip. Some time had passed. And God alone knows the state of Jacob's mind as he pondered the fate of his youngest son. I can't imagine losing a child. It's, it's, it's been said it's not a natural thing. Jacob thinks he's lost one and he's convinced he's going to lose another. It's a heavy weight on this man's soul. When they arrive, Benjamin's with him, but he's not even mentioned in this paragraph. When they return, there's no mention that Jacob is overjoyed at seeing Benjamin. He's here. But that happened. The news is all about the son that for 22 years you thought was dead. He's alive. And he's governor over Egypt. And he wants to take us to be where he is. His sons press him on this, explaining the wealth and the provision that Joseph had sent with them. See? All of this stuff is from Egypt. It's from Joseph, your son. And it's like, Joseph says enough. My son Joseph is alive. I'm going to go see him before I die. He wants to go. Gil sums it up this way. In Joseph's making himself known to his brother, and he, he was a type of Christ who manifests himself to his people alone. He didn't manifest himself that way to the Egyptians, just to his brothers. He does not go into the world saying to them that he is Jesus the Savior, their friend and brother whom they crucified, whose sins were the cause of his sufferings. Yet he encourages them to come close with a humble and holy boldness, giving him abundant reason to believe that he will receive them kindly. That's what he says to people that the Father has chosen. Come to me and I will give you rest. Power mixed with love. I really appreciate what Michael Hicks taught a few weeks ago about this 
greatness and goodness of God have to be seen together. Because if God loves you with an everlasting love, but He has no more ability than a man, that love is meaningless. But He's not. He's almighty. He's the Creator. And all things were created for His pleasure. And what gives Him pleasure is to lavish His love on His people. Now, the first seven verses of Genesis 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the vision of night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will surely bring you up again and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his son's sons, his daughters and his son's daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. He's called Jacob and Israel both in these two chapters. Jacob at first, Israel now. Israel packs up all that he had and he sets off on the journey. And taking all that he owned conveyed the idea that this was a permanent move. Jacob understands this is, for him, a permanent move. He's taken everything with him. He traveled to Beersheba and offered sacrifice to God at the same place that Isaac had lived and made sacrifices. That night, this last of the patriarchs, is visited by Yahweh in a vision. And God calls him Jacob twice rather than Israel. This may be, as some think, to reinforce the idea that God is a personal God. He doesn't come to him as a patriarch of Israel. He comes to him as his son, calling him by his name Jacob. He identifies himself as the one and only God who spoke to Isaac. And he confirms to Jacob that he must go to Egypt. This may have caused Jacob some concern as his father faced a similar situation. He was told not to go to Egypt. You remember when Isaac, back in uh, Genesis 26. Let's look at that right quick. Uh, 26, 1 and 2. There was a famine in the land. See, there was a famine in the land during... Jacob's time. During Isaac's time, there was a famine in the land. And beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For you, to you and your descendants, I give all these lands and I will perform the the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. 
told Isaac, don't go to Egypt. Jacob was probably a lad and he heard about this. Don't go to Egypt. And now he's told, go to Egypt. Mm, tension. He goes to Egypt because God told him to go. This tells us that guidance meant for one person may not be suitable for another person. Just because God has somebody doing this doesn't mean that's what you need to be doing. He gifts each one of us according to his desire and we're to work according to the gifts that he's given us. Some to teach, some to serve, some to give, some to minister. All are gifted, all for the good of the body of Christ. But he tells Jacob that he will die in Egypt, but he will be brought back to Canaan to be buried and God himself will be with him the entire time. And what did Jesus say in the Great Commission after he tells him what to do? He says, I will be with you always. God is always with his people. Jacob is going to close the eyes of his father Isaac when he dies. So all of this is before Jacob. And the next morning, Jacob and his clan, they hit the road and they head to Egypt. Now we learn later in chapter 46 verse 27, that all the persons that went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body besides Jacob's sons' wives were 66 persons in all. So you get Jacob and his clan, not counting Jacob's sons' wives, 66 people plus Jacob's sons' wives. Another, I don't know, 15 and their kids. Not a small group. Not nearly as large a group as would be delivered from Egypt in 430 years. Right? Rather inauspicious beginnings. But God, not done with him yet. So, got to wrap up quickly. It's easy to say that this chapter reveals the providence of God and just leave it at that. That much is written large and bold in this chapter, but we must also see his personal care for the people he has called to himself. So one thing I want us to focus on is God's providence and his goodness to his people. The other thing is the end of deception, because see, in this passage, we see how the, when the final destination for the brothers was known to them, as they saw in their minds part of what lie ahead all pretense of the lifelong habit of lies and deception was brought to an end. Jacob finally knew the evil that his sons had done. All was in the open. And Joseph would assure them several times that there would be no repercussions from him for what they had done to him. But they had a hard time believing that. Because why? Because when you hurt somebody, uh, the expectation is they're going to strike back. He says... This ain't going to happen. We read that's the Christian ethic, is it not? Do not do evil to those who do evil to you. So, when we arrive at our final destination, and as I read in Hebrews, all things are open and naked to the, to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account, because no creature is hidden from His sight. 
And while we walk on this earth, each of us plays little games. We have white lies here, white lies there. We hide certain actions from those we love. And the list goes on and on and on. We are accustomed to deception and distrust. This is the way of the world. And we came out of the world. And the ways of the world tend to cling to us too tightly. And we ought not to be satisfied with that. We who are in Christ must come to the place now where we stop playing these games. Confess all to the one who sees all. This is the way to peace. The end to a conflicted conscience. Being forgiven, we can rest assured that the repercussions have been taken away. Christ has come. All the trials that these men faced were part of God's plan to do good for the people that He had promised. The individual trials each person faced were not perceived at the time to be part of a good plan. But Jacob grieved Joseph in despair for a time as he was forgotten in jail. All of these things, God was working to bring about what He had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had promised to make them a great nation. God cannot deny Himself. If God has promised something, He will bring it to pass. If He has promised to do good for those who love Him or are called according to His purpose, He will do good for us. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It bears repeating, we can trust God to do good for us, to be good to us because He is the Almighty God who created all things and reigns over all things as the only sovereign Lord. He is our strong tower. If you are in Christ, there is no need to keep secrets since He knows all things. Christians are forgiven all sins, so there's no reason to play the deception game with God as if you could. If you are not in Christ, there is no ability to keep secrets because He knows all things. And this ought to cause you to tremble. For there is judgment looming large that cannot be thwarted by any scheme of man. There's a couple of verses from a song we sing that describe a lost person's, an unsaved person's movement. Listen to this. You know these lyrics. Wrapped in the shadows of the night, fond of darkness more than light, blind, I ran the sinful race. I felt no need for a hiding place. But then a heavenly voice I heard, and mercy for my soul appeared, who led me on with gentle pace to Jesus as my hiding place. On Him, almighty vengeance fell. It would have sunk this world to hell. He bore it for a sinful race to make Himself our hiding place. The price of redemption has been paid. There is nothing you can do but cry out to Him to have mercy on your soul. If He calls you, do not harden your heart. He is mighty to save. Nobody else is. And He is merciful to those who have need of a Savior. Trust in the Lord Jesus. He alone can do a body good. 
Let's pray.